Well, before we look at the Lord's word uh, this evening, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that midweek we can be refreshed by fellowship with one another and uh, time together in your word and time together in prayer. And we pray that uh, this evening would be an evening of refreshment for all of us, uh, that no matter what we're dealing with, Uh, or navigating in our secular affairs at work uh, or in our home lives, Lord, that this would be a time to come and reflect on your word and recognize our rest in Christ that we have mutually, which is to be reflected in our fellowship. Lord, we pray that you would guide us and direct us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, we'll be looking at the first five, six, sorry, the first six verses. Uh, Let me get here to my outline. The first six verses of chapter five, and uh, I'm going to go ahead and read it. Uh, I know I didn't read it before I prayed. We'll read it afterwards. That's okay. Uh, But it says this, beginning in verse one, hear the word of God. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, carry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. In the last lesson, last week, we came out of chapter 4 and we completed chapter 4. And in that last section of chapter 4, we looked at the pride, the arrogance, and the haughtiness of forsaking reliance and dependence upon the Lord. So we looked at how we are utterly dependent and reliant upon God and how that should in some way be reflected in our lives as Christians. We looked at, at the very last, the sin of omission in verse 17, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, there's not really a smooth transition from that to our text in verses 1 through 5. But in this lesson, in this Bible study, as we look at the first six verses of chapter 5, we're going to examine four ways in which James says tyrants or oppressors will be judged. And just to positionalize myself real quickly so you can understand kind of where I'm going, I think he's speaking to those who are in the church Maybe they're true Christians, maybe they're, maybe they're not. Maybe they're true Christians in danger of succumbing to the temptations of wealth and riches. These are well-to-do individuals that James is addressing here. Maybe these are uh, false uh, converts, they're uh, Christian in name only, and they are uh, oppressing uh, others uh, around them, their brothers and sisters in Christ and their various relations that they have with them. And James moves through basically four, I have outlined here, four ways in which these oppressors, these wealthy individuals, take advantage of or abuse their wealth and begin to oppress 
others. And so he's speaking of those who exalt themselves uh, as gods, which is what greed uh, causes us to do, is essentially exalt ourselves uh, in our greed, our, our, our desires, our passions, our lusts, and those end up running the show, and then we begin to abuse others. And uh, this is especially the case with those in power and those with wealth, subjecting men to poverty and various forms of suffering. So we're going to look at four ways these wicked men are judged. Number one, their wealth wears out. All right? Their wealth wears out. These are four ways these wicked men, these oppressors, are judged. Number one, their wealth wears out. Number two, their wealth is going to turn on them. Their wealth is going to turn on them and be a witness against them before God. Number three, God is going to hear and answer, we might say. He's going to hear and answer the cries of the oppressed. There's language here that goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 3 when God hears, tells Moses that he hears the, uh, uh, the cries of his people who are oppressed in Egypt. And so God will hear and answer the cries of the oppressed, um, which isn't good for oppressors. And then number four, the fat, the greedy, that's imagery for the greedy, are made ready for slaughter, just as a fat animal eats and eats and eats. And then finally, it's time to send them off to the butcher. It's that, it's that season. The butcher here implied is that the, the butcher would be the judge and the butchering would be the judgment, and these individuals are made fat for that slaughter, for that judgment. So, let's start out by looking at how wealth wears out. Anybody ever hear the phrase, you can't take it with you when you die? Everybody's heard that phrase, right? It's a household phrase, household proverb, and it's true. And sometimes you'll hear people give a fuller expression of that, and they'll say things like, well, you were brought into this world without anything, um, and you're going to leave this world without anything. Again, that's true. Scripture points out how uh, man was formed from the dust of the ground, and he shall, as a result of the curse, return to the dust of the ground. And so uh, even though it's a household proverb, it jives well with scriptural data. This is the first judgment of the rich oppressor. The fact that he can't take his wealth with him. So if his identity and his meaning and his significance is tied up in his wealth, which it seems to be in the hypothetical person that James is talking about here, maybe hypothetical, maybe not so much. If it's all tied into the wealth and the wealth ends, then that person's meaning, significance, the reason for their praise in society and so forth will end. So James addresses this theoretical tyrant, this oppressor, when he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. It starts on a pretty dour note. It's not very bright. Not very hopeful. It's a threat. But James is writing proverbially. He's switching from practical subject to practical subject. That's the reason for a kind of a sharp break, a, a, a rough transition, we might say from chapter 4 here into verse 1 of chapter 5. There's no real smooth transition between those things. But here he's addressing rich men who abuse their wealth and who find themselves in Christ's church. He's writing to professing Christians who are wealthy 
and who are prone to abuse their riches and perhaps have already begun abusing their riches. So I don't think, and the other thing is he doesn't write to all rich men. The Bible admits the possibility and the reality of wealthy individuals who are godly, who leverage their wealth for the good and glory of God and all of that. That's all possible. But the reality is that wealth produces a certain kind of temptation that tugs on man's natural tendency in his sin to be greedy. And so it's more common than not that the wealthy are corrupted by their wealth. But it's not a blanket statement. He's not saying just to be wealthy is bad. He's addressing those who have been consumed by their wealth. Those who abuse their wealth and oppress others by means of that abuse. So the first judgment these rich oppressors are going to experience is a loss of temporary gain. They will experience a loss of temporary gain whether that be as a result of some conundrum they experience in this life while they're alive, or whether that be at death, they will lose it. In verse 2, James writes, Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. And here you have this whole picture of temporality. Right? It's all subject to change. It's all subject to fading away. Riches fade away. And then in verse 3, he continues, your gold and silver are corroded. Now, I won't go any further than that because the second half of verse 3 will bring us to point number 2. But his point is that if all of your trust is in your wealth, then your trust and your meaning and your reliance is in that which fades away. Wealth fades, you can't take it with you. Wealth wears out. You came into the world without anything and you'll exit the world without anything. But there's a second judgment. That's the first. Their wealth will wear out. The second judgment is that eventually this wealth will turn on the wealthy who abuse their wealth. Their most cherished friend, their wealth, their money, their possessions will turn on them. And will act as witnesses against them. That's point number two. Wealth will turn on the wicked. Wealth will turn on the wicked. Your possessions will let you down. We can apply this to all of us. It's not just extremely or extraordinary wealthy persons that are subject to things like greed and abuse of possessions. I think we can apply this to all of us here. Our possessions will let us down. And if our possessions are our friends, if that's what we cherish the most if those if that's what we trust in we need to re rethink our relationships we need to rethink our relationships why are we trusting in these things that fade away why are we using these things that fade away to abuse others or take advantage of others james says your gold and silver are corroded it's temporal it's not lasting and then he says in the second half of verse 3, their corrosion will be witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. This is really going to dark places. Their corrosion will be witness against you. The language here is courtroom, right? So you have the idea of a, of a witness taking the stand. And in this case, it's all these possessions. It's their gold and their silver. Takes the witness stand and witnesses against the person who cherished them the most. And now he doesn't even stop there. He, he goes on. 
And he says, not only will they witness against you, but they will eat your flesh like fire. You thought that you had all this pleasure and this comfort and this security in them, but actually it's all going to turn out to be a curse. He's using the same language Paul does in Romans 2. James says, you've heaped, uh, uh, Paul says, you have heaped up treasure in the last days. Or actually, James says that. But then in Romans 2, 5, the, the similar language stands, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And the, the concept is the same. What's going on and what Paul's talking about in Romans 2 is similar to what James is talking about here in chapter 5. You've heaped up treasure in the last days. It's, it's not godliness. It's not commitment to God and faithfulness to his will. You are heaping up worldly goods, worldly treasure, worldly possessions, earthly possessions in the last days. That is your purpose. That is what you are fixated upon Romans 2.5, Paul says the same thing, but he expands on it a little bit. But in accordance with the hardness of your impenitent heart. So we know what's behind it. It's this, it's this impenitent heart. You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. Now, James put this, puts this in terms of you're, you're, you're storing up all this earthly treasure, and this earthly treasure is going to witness against you, and it's actually going to give way to the wrath that you're going to experience. Paul's saying the same thing in Romans 2. And the idea is that one's most cherished wealth is going to turn into one's most painful end. Idols of a man's heart will give way to the wrath of God. All idols will fade, will erode, and will corrode until all that's left is the idolater, and God. And God judges the idolatry. Wealth will turn on the wicked. And to store up wealth as if that is the end all be all is to is to store is to actually store up wrath. So as we live out our days on this earth, we try to store up as much as we can for ourselves, treasure upon treasure upon treasure, gold bar. Gold brick upon gold brick, silver brick upon silver brick. And we think we're storing up something wonderful. We're storing up treasure. We're storing up wealth. And if our hope's in that, trust is in that, that's our idol. If that's what, if that's what it is, if that's the case, if it's our idol, then what we're doing is we're storing up wrath. So the second way in which tyrants or oppressors experience judgment is through the witness of their wealth. Their wealth will give way to judgment and is going to stand as a testimony against their idolatry. The third way the wealthy are judged, don't say just the wealthy, that's a little bit imprecise, but the third way in which idolaters and the greedy are judged who also use their wealth and their authority to oppress others, is God will hear the cries of the oppressed and he will answer them. Whether it be in some sort of immediate providential occurrence that he answers them in some temporal way or whether he answers them 
in the end, at Judgment Day, God will answer the oppressed by vindicating them. When the Jews were oppressed in Egypt, God hears their cries. God said to Moses, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Exodus 3, verse 7. And in verse 4, here in James, chapter 5, we see similar language that harkens back to the oppression of God's covenant people in Egypt. Indeed, the wages of the labors, or the, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, these are employees which you kept back by fraud. You kept back their, their pay. You kept back what was due to them for their labor. They cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. The Lord of hosts is another way we could say that. The workers, who in this case are reapers, they work out in the fields, are used and abused by the oppressors who don't pay the workers the wages they deserve. Now, how could that train? Is, is James speaking here of a special class of individual of the super mega wealthy that have the power and the money and the authority to abuse explicitly other individuals like this? Is he talking about only the obvious cases of this? Or is this something that can apply to the way in which we see one another and relate to one another within the church? I say the general principle is we don't use each other. We're not users. Do we rely on one another? Yes. Do we use one another as if we're pawns on a chessboard? And the answer is no. Usury is what's in view here. The oppressors oppress the workers. They do not give the workers their due, which is a biblical principle, to give the workers their due. The workers cry out. They pray to the Lord. The Lord hears their prayers. And if there are wealthy Christians in James's audience, if that's the case, if that's who James is addressing here, who abuse their wealth or who are thinking about abusing their wealth and these ways then this comes as a warning god hears those brothers or sisters whom you oppress what you do to christ's church you do to christ himself and so on the lord of hosts the heaven the lord of heaven and earth and all the angels the angelic hosts hears the cries of his people and will come to their aid and that should be a warning really to, to all Christians, those who carry around the name of Christ, that we don't use other Christians for our sinful ends. And in terms of how we treat one another, we ought to understand that we are interacting with the people of God. We're interacting with God's people. What we do to God's people, we do to God himself. And we also know that God will protect his people from oppressors. He will guard his people. He will vindicate his people. We shouldn't oppress the brethren in any way. But the judgment that will befall these men who oppress the workers, the reapers, is that the reapers will cry out to God and God will hear their prayers. Fourthly and lastly, and this brings us to verses 5 and 6. When a cow is 
fat. You, know, you buy a cow as a calf, little baby, you bottle feed it. And it moves up to hard, you know, solid food, and you, you give it feed, and grazes on grass, and things like that. And then as it grows, and it gets bigger, and it eats a hefty diet, and all of this, it, it becomes large. And you either, as a farmer, are going to let it grow old and die, and that'll happen when you don't know about it, and it'll be at midnight, and then you'll find it the next day, and that'll be a waste of product. Or you send it to the butcher when it's time. When a cow is fat, it's time to slaughter it for food. Farmers look for fat and livestock to send to the butcher. So the analogy here. Verse 5, James says, You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. And the idea is they're taking in all of this stuff. They're, they're consuming. They're greedy. They're just living in pleasure and luxury. And you get the idea of like a, a pig or a hog that... <clears throat> Just constantly in the slop and eating the slew out of the hog trough and all of this. And that's their pleasure and luxury that they're just taking in and taking in. That's a picture of the greedy person. You fattened your hearts in the day as in the day of slaughter. See, the illusion here is you are fat and ready for slaughter. You've taken pleasure and luxury and that's it. And that was your end. And that was your reward. And now you're ready for the day of slaughter, is what James is saying to these individuals. And the idea here is this. You've greedily consumed. You've fed your own pleasures, your own lusts, and whatever else, however else we could say that, like hogs eat slot from the trowel. And you've grown fat, and you're ready for the slaughter. You're ready for the butcher. It's time to be taken to the butcher. It's time for the judgment. It's time to stand before God. In verse 6, James says these oppressors, he goes on to describe their activity. They've condemned, you have, he says, the oppressors have condemned, you have murdered the just, he says. They've spoken evil of fellow Christians, they've judged them, they've perhaps caused divisions amongst them. They've caused them to languish in poverty due to their abuses. And it's apparently even resulted in death. I don't know of what sort exactly. But that's what's said in the text. You've murdered the just. Some have taken that to mean that um, these individuals were in, involved in the, um, the killing of our Lord. Um, I don't think that's the case. I think James is talking about uh, a situation that's going on within a congregation or congregations. And this often happened in the first century, especially in an agrarian society where you'd have a certain class that had the prerogative and the power and the economy to be able to oppress a lower class than themselves. And this would kind of relationship would be brought into the church as well. And then James ends by saying, he does not resist you. So read it all together, verse 5 to verse 6. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You've, you've, you've greedily taken in all things, and that's, that's been your meaning. That's where you found your purpose. You're ready for slaughter. You're ready for the judgment. But then he goes on to describe other things they've done. Verse 6, you have condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Okay, so that's the last line. He does not resist you. Now, there's two ways we could take this, and two ways the Bible commentators have taken it. Either it speaks of the faithful who were abused, the ones who were abused, the victims, 
who did not resist the abusers, right? They kind of passively submitted to their abuses. They were righteous, they didn't retaliate, and they were persecuted in essence. Or it speaks of God who, while he does not currently resist the oppressors, the, the insinuation is that shortly he will. In a short amount of time, he will. He will come to you. He doesn't now. He doesn't resist you now. But he will. And actually, I think that's what James is talking about. I think he's referring to God there. Now, I could be wrong. But if you just look at the... We'll, we'll, we'll cheat a little bit. We'll move into verse 7. Just look at verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. So the very next thing out of James's pen is a reference to the coming of God. An allusion to the vindication of the saints. I think he's talking about God. God doesn't resist you now, but he will. He will. The implication, so therefore repent. So the coming of the Lord, verse 7, in the next passage, that we'll look at that next time, refers to the vindication and deliverance of the faithful and the judgment of the oppressors. All of that comes into view. But the main implication for us as a church is to bring it back home here, beloved, is that we avoid sinning against one another. It doesn't have to be some special wealth class, uh, you know, oppressing the lowest class on the totem pole or something obvious like that. That's the illustration. That's perhaps even the historical situation that James is dealing with. But the principle here is that the wealthy in this case have no business treating the just like that. Treating Christians like that. You know, it's so common today for professing Christians in general. You just think about, we'll talk a little bit about this in the, in the afternoon service uh, this coming Sunday. And how, how low of a view of the church that we have. And, and this goes all the way up. It goes all the way down. How this affects our practice. Um, because we have a low view of Christ church. We have a low view of, uh, of our own churches. But we have a low view of other churches. And it goes all the way up to a low view of Christ. And his heart for the church. It, and, and how that plays out in interpersonal relationships, personal relationships amongst us as Christians, becomes obvious. It's common for Christians to disregard one another for the sake of our own lusts. And so instead of that, that's the, that would be the worldly way of interacting with others, using people as ends, like these oppressors were using these oppressed as as ends for their gain. But as Christians, as we interact with one another and as we relate to one another, as fellow Christians, within the same local church especially, let's think about how we would rather love one another and love the brethren sacrificially rather than discarding the brethren or jumping over the brethren or, uh, or using the brethren for the sake of our own selfish gain or lust or whatever that might be. What does it mean to love the brethren sacrificially instead of just tolerating the brethren or 
even abusing the brethren or using the brethren in some way. We need to keep that front and center. It's easy to become um, complacent. It's easy to become uh, cynical, uh, especially in our uh, lifetime, in our generation, our day and age. It's, it's easy to, to become those things. But we have a different picture in Scripture. And the picture is one of love, imitation of Christ, and relationship with one another. Not oppression, not usury, but love. So we're to love one another and serve the Lord of Sabaoth, the the Lord of hosts, to glorify him along with one another. Now, next week, what we'll do is we'll look at probably verses 7 to 8. We may go a little longer than that, but... Just as a short preview, I'll go ahead and read verses 7 through 8. Verses 7 through 8 says, Therefore be patient, brethren. So he's, he's chiding these, these rich, these wealthy. He's going through at least four possible judgments that they'll experience, four possible losses that they'll experience, or, or four possible adverse effects of their behavior. Therefore, verse 7, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. Perhaps he's saying be patient, as you are oppressed by these people, be patient till the coming of the Lord, because the Lord will vindicate you. And he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient like the farmer. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And we will look at that next week.